Welcome to A Bun Dance. You guessed it, a podcast dedicated to all things surrounding dance. I am Kristen. And I am Hannah, and we are two best friends who are brought together by this art form. Please join us in five, six, seven, eight. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Kristen. Long time no see. Just this past week that I was seeing you in person in New York City. Yeah, we had a really great time. We want to just tell you a little bit about our time together. So basically, I was in the city for a two-week residency at the Brishnikov Art Center with Lori Bellov and the Isdora Duncan Dance Company. And I had really intense days where I commuted in from Stanford, Connecticut and danced all day in New York City and then commuted back home to Connecticut and did it all for the 14 days I was there. And it just so happened that I also got to see Kristen. So that was just a nice little like add on to my trip and it just made it all the more special. So one of the things that we did when we were together was we went to a great macaroni and cheese place. Um, it's called Smack. You guys should try it if you ever get a chance. Yeah. I really like that place. And we also got some good ice cream as well, which was really fun. Always good to see Hannah and kind of crazy that soon we're gonna be swapping places here in the city. Yep, I'm gonna go in and you're yeah. gonna go out. <laughs> and I've just been busy lately with, I started an internship with Ballet Hartford, a ballet company in Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut. And I've been doing that. That's part of my degree plan here at NYU. And I started my last semester. So pretty crazy. I've just been really busy doing schoolwork and teaching. And before I know it, I'll be moving. It's about two and a half weeks away from now. So lots, lots to go on between now and then. But um, I'm, I'm excited for it all. Yeah, time is flying when you're having fun, right? Or I guess maybe when you're stressed out too, it goes by quick. <laughs> uh, when you're just busy. <laughs> That's purely what it's been. Just busy, lots of homework, lots of things. <laughs> yes. All right, well, today we have a lot of fun things to talk about. And our episode will be centered around traditions within the theater. So Hannah and I have prepared a little bit of research ahead of time on some of the things that we were curious about pertaining to the theater and to shows. But we also just are gonna be pulling a bit from our personal experiences and things that we're just curious about ourselves. So to start off, when you get to the theater, you're preparing for a show, you often are given assigned dressing rooms. So the dressing room is where you get ready, you do your show makeup, you put on your costumes. Dancers, if they have any kind of pre-show rituals, they might do those in their dressing room. Something that I just think that's interesting about the idea of assigned dressing rooms is that it's often done by kind of hierarchy or age. I don't necessarily see anything wrong with this because I think it does make sense to put dancers of similar ages together or um, similar ranks in the company or whether it be a shared role or something like that. I, I think it logically makes sense to group them that way, but I just wanted to shed a little light on this because I feel like the dance world, specifically ballet, is very hierarchical 
and that we are very concerned about ranks, right? So I just, I think that that's interesting how that's something that's present when it comes to dressing rooms and it's that it's typically not just a free for all of go where you want, go where you choose. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Hannah. Well, I was just thinking about even, I think this is true for most companies, the principal dancers get their own dressing room or like they share it just with one, one other dancer. Is that true? Yeah, typically. I mean, I think it definitely depends upon the company, right? And how many dancers there are total, the type of theater that they're performing in. You know, some theaters have more dressing rooms than others. So it might not always be the case, but in terms of that hierarchy, you're definitely right that usually the principal dancers or the soloists, they get either the nicer dressing rooms or the bigger ones or have their own private for sure. Yeah, whereas if you were in the core, you're probably sharing with your fellow core members, right? Yeah, exactly. But then you would think like the kids, like maybe the those that are in the school that participate in the ballads, they probably have their own dressing rooms too, as kind of what you're just saying, like maybe based on age or, or gender yeah. or not. Yeah. Which I think makes sense, but mm-hmm. um, I just find it interesting too. I would say that dancers tend to be a bit possessive at times too of their kind of dressing room spots, you know? And I think that that also ties in a little bit to kind of that ritual component. So not necessarily that, you know, a dancer's trying to be snooty about getting a particular spot, but I think it's more of that routine of it all, you know, at the start of a tech week, being in the same spot throughout the week for routine purposes and kind of getting in that mental kind of mindset. Yeah, and I also think it's about like also just being at your best. I remember growing up as a like a little kid, I would have to do my bun like perfect or I felt like I would have a bad dancing day. So I think it kind of similar in this situation. A lot of people like to have their set spot that they know that they can do well in to then have a good show. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's if you remember back to Mercyhurst, that's kind of how I was with my bar spot. If you remember freshman to senior year, I most often stood at that one spot by the sliding glass doors in the front studio. And that was where I like to be. And same in the back studio, it was right in that window slot on the farthest back wall. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was the same thing. Yeah, it feels comfortable and it felt like I was set up, prepared, I knew what was happening and that I could have a good class if I was there. Whereas things just felt more foreign and wrong when I was standing somewhere else in class. And that's not always a good thing on my end. It definitely is good to be adaptable. And I would argue that it is good to switch up something like a bar spot, for example, so you can see different views of yourself. But it definitely, I would say, ties back to everyone's own little like quirks and and little personal traditions or things that that are comfortable for them and, and make them feel best in their performance. Yeah, and um, sometime we're gonna have to talk about this too, but I think just the idea of the warm up and how, I, I remember you saying like, if you didn't get to the studio like a half an hour earlier or something, like you feel like you would be thrown off, right? Where some people 
don't like I didn't have to go and like be there at a certain time and do all these certain things to feel like I was ready to go for class but I did have to warm up in some capacity but there are people who are like okay no this is my scheduled routine this is what I have to do or I'm not going to be as successful as I want to be so yeah. that's just a whole nother topic I think to focus on some other time but it all kind of ties into that ritualistic mindset that dancers have absolutely and even with that when we're talking specifically about performances and shows today I think that some dancers even have specific show warm-ups so every performance they need to do a set warm-up or say if they're doing a certain run if they're doing Nutcracker versus they're doing you know a showcase with contemporary work they might have certain things that feel right for their body then during that time in that particular show yep that's also a good point to bring up as well yeah so did you ever have like a pair of lucky like lucky socks or lucky something that you would wear for shows Mm. No, but I did have to like do my hair perfect ahead of time. Like yes, it would drive me nuts. <laughs> you talked was. about the hair, so you were a hair person. I was definitely a hair person for everything. I see. And like makeup too. I had to have like perfect makeup where I just didn't feel like it, I would look good enough. <laughs> yeah. You're definitely not alone in that. I can think back to at Mercyhurst when I would be warming up or even just when we, a bunch of us all lived together, observing how often some people would just redo their hair. You know, I'd be off in the corner warming up or whatever. Meanwhile, the whole time someone's sitting in front of the mirror and redoing their bun or their French twist like three times in a row. And nothing wrong with that to each their own, but it's just interesting. I would definitely say that that's a thing that some people gravitate towards more than others. Well, I think it's the, I think it's the appearance aspect, you know, we're our own instrument. So I would have to feel comfortable enough with myself looking at myself in the mirror yeah. <laughs> all the time. And so if something was a little out of place, I'd just be like, oh no, I need to fix it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, after kind of getting situated in the dressing room, you're getting ready, you put on your costume. I know we can relate to this, but at Mercyhurst, we would get called over the intercom to head to the green room where we would do circle time with everyone. This was kind of a a more like emotional tradition, I think I would say, where typically our faculty, usually our department chair, or maybe if someone's in particular was kind of like heading the show, would speak to all of the dancers, kind of give us a little pep talk, a little like speech of gratitude and um, we would take a moment and send some energy in a circle squeezing the person's hand to our right until it made its way all the way around. Yeah and a lot of times the person in charge would also talk about maybe this is your last time dancing with a senior or make sure that you you know, keep in mind that this is a really special performance and you're only going to do it so many times. And especially when it was the last show, I remember that being so, so emotional because you yeah. work to this final moment and, and then it's all gone after a couple of hours. So I think that just goes along with being in the present moment. And I wonder too, if that's why there are pre-show rituals for companies and for 
studios and universities because it allows everyone to kind of get in the same headspace, almost like a camaraderie kind of thing, moment. And while we're all like talking and getting ready, it's a, a moment to just be together and to be present. Yeah. What I think is also really special about kind of a circle type ritual like that is that no circle time was ever the same. Kind of just like a performance, right? No performance is ever the same. You rehearse it a million times and you're typically striving to achieve a level of consistency in your dancing, but even as consistent as we try to be, every performance is gonna be slightly different. You're gonna have different nuances. There's gonna be different levels of energy. Your leg might be higher one day than another. You might whip out an, ever, an extra turn. Like just every performance is unique and every circle was unique too. There just was always something, like you said, something special or something memorable about each and every time. Yeah, and while we can't speak for all of the companies out there, I think it it is probably a universal feeling mm -hmm. that we're all in this together. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm sure places all do it differently. Some places might not do anything like that, but I would say that there's usually something of that nature that a lot of different companies and schools will do. One thing I was thinking about, Hannah, though, that I'm curious what you think about this. I just think it's interesting, at least at Mercyhurst, how close to curtain call we had circle. Because I always felt like people were stressed. People were like half in their costumes. Everyone was scrambling. And I, a lot of times, not even everyone made it to circle. You know, some people were kind of like, eh, screw it. You know, I need to finish getting ready. And in reality, I mean, it is more important to make it on stage if you're in the first act or you're in the start of the show than to make it to circle, like for sure. But I always thought it was interesting. I mean, yes, you want to, you're trying to like bring a level of energy and connection. And like you said, um, kind of focus in and get in the right mindset. But like five, 10 minutes before the show begins, whatever it is, at least it always felt like five or 10 minutes before the show began. Seems a little close, in my opinion. I don't, I don't know if that was ever a thought or a feeling that you... Well, now that you bring it up, it definitely was. I was always kind of like, oh my gosh, like we're about to do this thing and now we're getting ready to be together as a group just before. Like also the thing was the green room wasn't on the same level as the stage. No. You also had to like walk down a hallway and go up like flights of stairs. Right. And I feel like at that point, five, 10 minutes before the show, you want to be kind of in that stage area. Yeah. <laughs> you were so funny. And but especially if you're dancing right at the beginning, like dancers will often go on stage because the curtain is down and will start kind of warming up or, you know, kind of marking through their choreography. That's an opportunity to do so, or even to be in the wings and to be just doing yeah. a little bit of movement to the environment. Yeah. Staying warm. And so I feel like by having circles so close to the start of the show that that does kind of cut into that, that time a little bit. Yeah. And it, it, for me, it, 
created a little sense, a little bit of heightened anxiety, but you know what? A little nervous energy, I guess, is is okay and is good for shows, so. Yeah, I wonder if there were any years that they did do it earlier on and maybe people were like, no, I don't know, but that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, I guess it's probably different for every place, but our school was just kind of like that. Yeah. And that's okay to each their own. <laughs> exactly. All right. Should we take a really brief break? Yep. Sounds good. Here's a word from our sponsor. All right, folks, we are back and we are ready to talk about break a leg versus the term mared. So in that period of now, you know, we've had circle time or you've done whatever tradition your school or company may do. Typically in the wings, you will hear dancers whispering to each other, mayored, maybe giving a little hand squeeze, a little hug, just some, some love and some energy to their, their peers. So in the theater world, as in like musical theater plays that realm as opposed to dance, you often hear the term break a leg. However, in the dance world, we don't really use that. We use mared. And if you're not familiar with this term, it's a French exclamation that loosely translates to poop. And <laughs> there's a reason behind this all. It's historical in nature. According to Raymond Lukens, who actually is one of my professors, at NYU through my ABT program. So it's been really cool. I've been able to work closely with him. And if you don't know him, look him up because he has an amazing background. He spoke in um, Dance Spirit Magazine that this dates back to the 19th century when patrons of the Paris Opera Ballet would arrive at the Palace Garnier in horse-drawn carriages. If there was a full house, they would also have a lot of horse manure in front of the theater. This was a way of telling the dancers to have a good show because there's a packed audience. So they would say mared, meaning that there's a lot of people that arrived in horse-drawn carriages. There's a lot of people there to see the show. Although in my research, I did find a little bit of controversy between this. So some believe that story Whereas others will kind of have their own little twist on it, where they will say that it indicated that they were warning the dancers of actually stepping in the manure outside of the theater. So as the dancers would be coming in, getting ready for the show, they wanted them to, to know not to step in it. I've heard both from people, although I, I'm less convinced by the second retelling my reasoning behind that is because wouldn't the dancers be at the theater before the audience members? That's what I feel like. I feel like if you're coming in and the audience is already there, like you've got something, something, something happened there. That's not really how it normally goes. So perhaps they meant maybe after the show or something like that, like don't step in it on your way out. But I don't know. I, I'm a little skeptical about the second retelling, but that is kind of the uh, the history and the meaning behind Mared. And I actually have a, a little shirt that says it. Do you know what my shirt I'm talking about, Hannah? Yes, it's gray. Yes, it is. 
and it has black letters. You're wrong, but it's like dark heather gray with white letters. But oh, close is enough. it white letters? I thought it was black. Okay, well, <laughs> close enough, exactly. Yeah, but um, going off of that, it's just really like kind of comical that a phrase that is so commonly used means poop. Yeah, like poop equals good luck. <laughs> this isn't a dig against non-dancers or people who aren't familiar with kind of the history behind the term. I've had some people before like kind of laugh when like I've used the expression or even when I've worn my shirt. You know, people who know French typically know what that translates to. So I've worn the shirt before and people have been like, oh, haha, like cool shirt. Like that's funny. But I don't think that they they get the connection to yeah. it. So it's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not just wearing a shirt that says this. Like it's, I'm wearing it because of the connection that it has to yeah, me. Yeah, it has meaning. The dance. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of funny sometimes when people are like, oh yeah, haha, trying to make a connection. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But we're not on the same page. <laughs> Like, I know why you think it's funny, but this is not the reason why I bought this shirt. Yeah, <laughs> which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I always just ha like chuckle a little bit inside when that happens. Yeah, I understand why. All right, well, so the next topic we kind of wanna bring up or the next tradition is bowing. And I did a little bit of research on my own before we did this episode because I didn't know a whole lot about the reason why we do so. Of course, I knew that a bow means that it's like a mutual thank, thank you from the dancer or the performer to the audience members. And it, it's a form of gratitude. And when I was thinking about this and as I was reading, it's kind of like that unspoken agreement. Like you have a dancer bow after they did their performance. And then the clapping is that reciprocation of the the the, the bat like although you're not speaking it's that unspoken language you've got the movement of the bow and then the clapping is again that like reassurance of it I love that I actually never really thought of it that way and yeah it's almost like putting the period on like to the end of a sentence yeah, like know? the audience acknowledges that it's done yeah that's yeah. wow that's such a cool way to think about something that i think is interesting in relationship to talking about bowing is that sometimes in shows people start clapping before a piece is actually done you know there might be kind of a lull a, a sense of stillness or quietness in the music that people think means the piece is over. But I think more and more artists nowadays are taking those artistic liberties of incorporating a lot of stillness or, or moments where you think it might be the end, but it's really not. And so while bows aren't always necessary, in my opinion, like I don't think that you absolutely have to have a bow at the end of every single piece or you know if we're talking about classical ballets for yeah, example it can lead to black too like if you're doing piece after piece like for raw edges for example you're not always going to have a bow a lot of times we do yeah not always 
or just for like the cohesiveness of a show or a story like I was saying about classical ballets for example like yes you do have bowing after specific variations or a pas de deux stuff like that but also throughout the progression of the story you're not having people bow between every single entrance and exit that would just disrupt the whole the whole point the whole story and so I think bowing isn't always necessary but it definitely like you said really does indicate a finite close and a moment for the dancers to get recognition yeah so I think that's so cool I'm like blown away a little bit by that what seems like it should have been obvious to me has <laughs> like really got the wheels turning <laughs> yeah I mean as I said, too, I, I have thought a little bit about what it means to bow or curtsy. And I think we, as dancers, know that it's kind of the end of our our dance or choreography when we do that. But really thinking about why does the audience clap? Why is that such a tradition is something I haven't really thought about and how it's that like mutual understanding that, yeah, I'm going to clap because you put on a show for me and I'm recognizing mm -hmm. your your performance so right. it's just like wow yeah there's a lot more to it than I think we see on the surface or we think about and at times too this isn't always the case I would say this is more rare than common or maybe not maybe not even maybe maybe it's more common than I think but at times you'll also see the dancers maybe take a moment on stage where they're then clapping back in return to the audience you know what I'm talking you about in the orchestra well, yeah, to the orchestra, but even to the audience, like I think that's at mo moments dancers will will take that and have some gratitude for the audience as well. And I think you made a really good point, Hannah, that just it's a very reciprocal kind of relationship between the dancers and the audience, because we as dancers rely upon the audience to be able to have livelihood and to be able to do what we do and to put on shows but the audience also relies upon us for entertainment and that's why they pay to come see a show. So it really goes both ways. I think that's the magic of live performance too and what we've been missing a lot of these Zoom times and virtual times because we haven't had that tradition of going to a live show and feeling that the presence of the dancer or the audience or the performer, I mean, it doesn't have to be dancer, yeah i just think that's something really big that we're all missing right now and i um just used my little uh reactions clapping on zoom just now <laughs> but that definitely doesn't have the same kind of effect as actual clapping in person <laughs> definitely and going off of that i think we could segue into a little bit about flowers because well, flowers are something that are received on stage oftentimes during battles. I yes but before we go into that I just wanted to say that do you remember when oh my gosh you weren't in dance history because you took it at Yale I forgot but I <laughs> thanks for giving me that little uh <laughs> shout out, yeah, little shout out. <laughs> um well I remember when I took dance history freshman year with um, our classmates, minus you, like literally everyone besides you. But I just want to say when you were all stressed for your final and studying together in Baldwin, that I went around and gave back massages to people while they studied. Yeah, so you, did, you 
you too, who's, sir. He's better than me. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> good friend. But um, I was going to say I remember when we were learning about where like dance originated from. It was during the like 19th century when you had court dancing and and this is where the bowing started when you had those ritualistic dances that were either based on different things like religion or gods or whatnot whatever you have like waltz versus polkas that was very much uh you know you bow to your partner you bow to you know if that's in the choreography and that's right where this all started Mm -hmm. and i think that also then translates now to the flower thing because i was researching about this a little bit and in 1824 there was a, a show and flowers were being thrown on stage actually now we don't see that so much anymore we don't see like flowers being tossed at <laughs> dancers anymore but that's when it all started and from then on it became a common practice that we give flowers to performers so I just thought it was interesting anyway continue on your spiel about flowers oh no you're good that was really interesting I didn't know that that last detail you threw in there But yeah, I was just, I thought that these two topics tie in really nicely with one another because I specifically, I I think of ballet a lot when I think of bowing and flowers um, at the end of the show. But of course, it's it's relevant to many different types of dance, but ballet is obviously what I, as we know, am most familiar with. And at the end of a performance, the main couple, so who usually the principal dancer or the lead of the show will receive a nice gorgeous bouquet on stage. And when this happens, there's the tradition that the female ballet dancer will typically take a single flower, kiss it, and then give it to her male partner as a sign of thank you and praise. Something that I learned, which I think is really interesting, I had no idea that this was the case. I guess I must have not received enough bouquets on stage during my day. (laughs) But typically, this flower that the female gives to her partner is typically loosened ahead of time off stage. So it's kind of sticking out a little bit already. So that way, it's easier for the dancer to just so gracefully pull it out and hand it to her partner which really, it does make sense because I feel like knowing me, I would be that person that like, you know, I was trying to pull a flower out and it gets like stuck and it's just (laughs) not a pretty sight to see. But I always think of kind of that iconic moment. I think back to having seen a bunch of ballets at ABT before and just kind of the effortless nature of of all of the bowing and that whole whole ending of a show. Yeah. Yeah, and um flowers have been a part of ballet since the very beginning. So when this all started, flowers were very much an integral part of the whole process, the the ritual of a ballet performance. They just kind of got in um, woven into the the whole thing. And I feel like now, and you're, you make a good point, you associate ballet with flowers and bowing and it makes sense because this is what we've seen since the beginning of history Mm -hmm. so it's all just it's it's very special and unique to the arts 
I think to, to and I don't even necessarily mean like I think the performing arts yeah when you, see, when you see like an artist if they you know if they're showing their art on display it's not like someone's like oh here's a flower I don't think we really see that too much but I think maybe more with like operas or like orchestral type performances I think that would be probably more present but I I, I know what you're saying like at an art exhibit or something, I, I wouldn't say that the artist is presented flowers necessarily. They might have a loved one who's coming to see them or a family who who may give them flowers, but it, I don't think it's, like you said, woven into the whole tradition yeah. of the art. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something you wanna bring up, just bring back this idea of hierarchy once again, something that, is interesting once again, I mean, it does kind of make sense. I, I'm i not questioning it in that nature, I guess, but just think it's interesting that nobody below receives flowers on stage if the lead does not. So it's always once again, a hierarchy. It's always kind of the top dancer, the lead in the show, whomever that might be, the principal dancers, they're the ones who are receiving flowers. Sometimes people below them might, sometimes soloists might as well, but the soloists aren't going to be receiving flowers if the principal dancers are not, and forget about it. I mean, your corps de ballet, your apprentice, your whomever, they're not going to be receiving flowers on stage, unless, of course, you're doing some sort of specific, you know, showcase or something. Like, if we're talking about, like, a school recital or something of that nature, then yes, sure, the younger kids might receive flowers as well, but if we're talking about, like, a a company with with ranks yeah it's interesting it is interesting and also the male dancer doesn't get that bouquet like the the female does they get that one flower and i also read i don't know if this is true or not but a man might get champagne or wine so they'll get drinks instead of flowers i guess they don't like get after the show I, guess. I don't know i was reading about this i don't know how true this is how accurate but I guess so you go back to your dressing room and there's just a bottle of champagne and glass. I mean, I wouldn't mind that. Yeah, um, but I guess it's like a faux pas for, for men to get flowers. They shouldn't. And I think that goes back to gender. Like, gender. Uh, right? Absolutely gender because flowers are feminized Feminine. in our society. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. But hey, flowers are beautiful and I think anyone should be able to enjoy or receive flowers. But yeah. Oh, what? Oh, no, you're fine. I just was going to say that that's interesting, though, about I, I guess I never realized that maybe men, uh, men maybe of, of prestige of in these big companies, maybe they receive something behind the scenes that we're not aware realizing. of. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. I also read about how even the stem is taken into account. The principal dancers generally get that bouquet that has the long stem because they're holding it in their arms. That's something they can hold. While mm -hmm. shorter stems are given to maybe the kids or those of lesser rank. And that's something you can just hold in your hand. Ah. When you have a bouquet, it's, it's this whole big affair. Mm, I see, I Again, see. Again, don't know how true this all is but I was reading about it and I was like well you might you know might as well share it <laughs> absolutely and even besides receiving flowers on stage of course after the performance when people go out into the lobby and are starting to mingle with people 
it's very common for friends and family to bring flowers to give to the dancer. And I just know from experience, like, I don't know, there's just something special. I feel like after going home from a show where maybe you kind of have received a lot of flowers and putting them in the vases and just having that to like look at for the next week. And for me, it just brings back happy, like memories and associations from the show. I don't know. It's just a little reminder there yeah. for, for the week up until they, they die and you have to throw them out. But <laughs> yeah, but it's definitely a reminder of the hard work that you put in and that you did have special people coming to watch you. Yeah. I also did want to just mention, and this is something I haven't really thought about prior to really diving deep into this research. Each flower and each color have meaning. And I don't think like my family, you know, goes to the store and they're like, oh, this is a rose. So it means love, passion, and beauty. Like this is what we have to get Hannah. Like, I don't think that's something that goes into their mind when they're picking out a flower. I think they're like, oh, this is really pretty. I want to get her this or, you know, but they all have different meanings. And I just find that really like astonishing. It's like, wow, like someone really thought about this. Like white means purity, innocence, heavenly, etc. Like dark pink, appreciation and gratitude. Yellow is joy, friendship, new beginnings. And cream is a gesture of thanks. And as I said, like these are just some of the colors that you see in flowers, but also different types of flowers have meaning as well. So maybe someone really thinks long and hard. Maybe a, a, a goer of the ballet will be like, I know that I'm seeing the Nutcracker, so I'm going to get this person this type of flower in this color because it reminds me of the ballet in this way, <laughs> I don't know. But it's just interesting. I was kind of like, wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't know too many like theater goers or, or show goers, whatever you want to call them, that put that much uh, level of, of thought and attention into buying someone flowers, but I think you do have a really good point about perhaps the flowers that are being presented on stage, the dancers, because I also came across a little bit about that in my research as well. And once again, I think this level of thought and attention would probably only, only really truly be taken into account for really big companies or performances, but- Yeah, or people who are really legit. Yeah, like famous dancers. Um, I was reading a little bit about how they might get custom bouquets or that the bouquet might have like a little piece that like ties in and matches with their costume and like stuff like that. So I think, I think that maybe that plays into it all a little bit more when we're talking about those, those big, big deal people, but your average Joe Schmo, um, <laughs> I think gets whatever is the cheapest or whatever. Right. right from like the local floral shop or even the like table outside that the fundraiser right. the, the, where the flowers are sold yeah no you're yeah. So right. and like and the thing is it's it's about the gesture it's a sign of thanks again like you're here are your flowers because you did something good good job good for you you did the thing right. <laughs> and uh you know it's it's just it's so it's so fascinating and I just I, I also was reading a little bit about this and you rarely ever see flowers given to dancers before a show. And I think that's, I read it's, it's a sign of bad luck. 
So that's why it's kind of like the end of the show. You get your flowers, period. It's over. Well, honestly, I think that that makes sense because like, I feel like by giving someone flowers in a way, it's like, good job, like nice work, an accomplishment. And not to say if like you have a rough show and someone bought you flowers, they're gonna be like, never mind, you're not deserving of these flowers. Like everyone's always gonna say good job after a show. I mean, at least like your friends and families, maybe not your teachers, but, or our company director. But I think, yeah, it would be a little bit strange to give someone that kind of like gift or accolade at the beginning and be like, great job, even though you haven't done it yet. Yeah, it's like you want to finish the thing. You want to accomplish what you're set to do. Yeah. Then have that. Okay, I did it. (laughs) Also, um, for most performances too, you're not typically seeing like friends and family until after the show. You typically don't really see them before because you're you're backstage, you're doing your things, you're getting ready. So I think that is a factor as well. Yeah. Um, Lastly, something I just want to bring up. I was reading a post by Katherine Barkman, who is a principal dancer with Washington Ballet. And this ties into bows, but also I think we can, we can uh, associate it with the flowers as well. She says, and I quote, a dancer bows not to be thanked, but to give thanks. Dance is a shared joy between you and the audience and that it's much bigger than just you when you're dancing. I think that's basically what we were saying earlier. I think that that sums it up nicely. We were talking about that reciprocation and the dancer feeling gratitude to the audience, the audience feeling gratitude towards the dancers. Yeah. And and I think the flowers then are just that ongoing. It's like a symbol of that. Right. Right. Um, Just a funny little tidbit I want to share is that um, growing up (laughs) when I had ballet performances, My parents actually were never super big about giving me flowers after shows. A couple times, you know, my my parents would make comments about like, oh, well, they just die, right? Like they don't really last. So they didn't always see the point to it. And so I received instead a few times what they would call a bouquet of money, (laughs) which was like five or 10 bucks, like, you know, kind of just like like taped together and be like here after a show because I mean flowers cost a lot of money so instead they would basically just give me the money that they would have sent buying flowers instead so I could buy something else that I wanted um and I believe a couple times instead of a bouquet of money I also received like Hershey's chocolate bars (laughs) I think that says a lot about me (laughs) Hershey's chocolate is like one of my favorite candies it always has been since I was a little kid and so I don't know that's just kind of a quirky little funny thing about my family and growing up me as a dancer receiving money and chocolate instead of flowers after shows yeah that's funny I wonder if there are other dancers who didn't receive flowers either then yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right anywho so after performance the theater gets cleared out everyone's out of the dressing rooms and we have something called a ghost light that we want to talk about a little bit (laughs) just kidding (laughs) nice ghost sounds (laughs) so um 
a lot of theatrical people in general have lots of superstitions and the ghost light is really just one of these many superstitions. So if you're not familiar what a ghost light is, it's basically a single bulb left burning whenever a theater is dark. Some people say it's to ward off the ghosts, while other people say it's to help all the ghosts in the theater navigate or kind of keep them happy because a lot of people do believe that theaters inevitably have a lot of ghosts that a lot of them live there. Um, so typically a ghost, ghost, whoa, whoa. Typically a ghost light is left center stage. So um, either way, it kind of ends up serving as a safety precaution. So if anyone were to kind of wander on stage when the theater is empty and it's dark, that they could, you know, see where they're going and avoid something tragic like falling off the stage and falling into the orchestra pit, which would just be awful. Or, uh, you know, like I said, it, it goes back to this idea of warding off ghosts. Wow, I can't say ghosts today. Warding off ghosts or keeping them happy. And I just looked into specifically a little bit about Broadway theaters, which I thought was interesting. I know that Broadway isn't just dance, it's theater as well, musical theater, but the New Amsterdam Theater, for example, on Broadway requires some lights to remain on at all times. So there's, it, it really depends theater to theater. You're not always just gonna have the ghost. Wow, I cannot say it, I really can't. Ghost, ghost, ghost. I keep thinking you're saying goat, to be honest with you. <laughs> I am saying ghost, listeners, G-H-O-S-T, I promise. So this will not always be the only light on, like at the New Amsterdam, they do, it's just a requirement for safety and all of the, those other reasons to have on multiple lights. But yeah, that's just a little bit about what I learned about ghost lights. Yeah. Thanks for sharing some of that. I did not know myself. So that's a good lesson. Yeah. I mean, there is something a little bit ominous about being in a theater when it's dark and no one's around. So I, I don't know, the ghost light to me almost makes it a little bit more ominous in some ways, but at the same time, if it was completely pitch dark, oh my gosh, I cannot even imagine. I know, I almost feel like maybe little night lights. <laughs> oh. <laughs> maybe that would make it less creepy. Well, I guess that's what a ghost light really no, is. I know, I'm just kidding. It's like a free floating night light. Can you imagine if people had that in their homes, like instead of in that. the back? or whatever in the hallways or in like a little kid's right. bedroom instead of a little night light it was just like a standing bulb, <laughs> bulb. oh my oh my goodness well yes if you're in a big space you do need that ghost light right it's not like you can have tiny little lights yeah it doesn't want to do anything yeah well, all of this talk about theater traditions really just makes me want to go to a show, perform in a show, even more than ever. I know, I'm very nostalgic. Very nostalgic. Yeah. But hopefully sooner rather than later, as more and more things start to open up, we hopefully will be dancing and seeing shows. Yes, 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 yes. So that being said, audience, uh, listeners, please go and support your local arts in your community because we all need the support, especially during this time. 
Yeah, I know Broadway is opening up in the fall. I know people who have bought tickets already to see shows on Broadway, but also support your local artists, the small organizations, not just big, well-known company, companies and organizations. They need the help too. Every, every arts organization is struggling to some extent right now in comparison to where they were prior to COVID, but spread the love, spread the wealth, go see some art, just do it. Yep, that's all we have to say, see the art. <laughs> all we have to say. All right, well, this has been fun. It has been, we will see you next time. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning into Abundance. We appreciate your support. We hope to have PK in your interest. Feel free to contact us at AbundancePodcast5678 at gmail.com and give us feedback on what you'd like to hear. That is Abundance without parentheses. Go dance yourself silly. Bye for now. A special thank you to Richard D. Fiore for our lovely podcast tune and Matt Mellish for our cover art.